Revelation chapter 19. The first seven verses are what we've called the Hallelujah Chorus, part of which is directly used by Handel and his young Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. We talked last week about God's omnipotence, how the God of the Bible is omnipotent. America's God's not omnipotent. The Republican God's not omnipotent because we somehow think that they're, yeah, we believe in God, we pay homage to Him, pay lip service to Him, but we somehow think that we can't know the future of this country and He doesn't know the future of this country and He never judges sin and so we've got to fix it. That's not the Bible God. The Bible God sets up presidents and kings and pulls them down. The Bible God sets up nations and pulls them down. The Bible omnipotent God is aware of everything that's going on and He governs this world. That's the God we worship. That's the God the saints worship here. Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. The Democrats don't, God is not Bible God. The Democrat party doesn't have a God. Their God is the devil. In my opinion, one man's opinion. American politics is not the answer. Republican, Democrats, all going to perish. We don't need politicians. We need a king. We need a Messiah. He's going to fix it. I praise God for political leaders who will take a stand. I praise God this has been the longest federal shutdown in the history of this country. That means our president has taken a stand that others would not. And I say keep it closed. Put a padlock on the door and don't open it until you learn to do what a government's supposed to do and that's protect its people. One man's opinion. If you want me to feel sorry for federal workers, you're not going to get that either. You know, these guys get to, they don't go to work, they don't get paid, they whine and moan, they set up GoFundMe accounts that they want us, the taxpayer, to do because they can't make the bills. And as soon as this thing opens, they're going to get all that money back paid to them. After they've gotten unemployment. After they've gotten funds from GoFundMe accounts. That's called double and triple dipping. And we're supposed to feel sorry for that? This thing hadn't affected me. Makes you wonder how many of these so-called federal jobs are even necessary. But that's what happens in a confused nation that's turned its back upon God. Can't even do what nations have done from time immemorial to protect its people. Can't even agree to do something so simple as put a barrier on its border. The Chinese did it to keep the Mongols out. It stands to this day. The Romans did it to keep the Picts out in England. Hadrian's Wall. The Jews did it not long ago around the West Bank. And guess what? All those stabbings and and, and terrorist bombings have taken a sharp turn downward. You can actually drive between Jerusalem and Bethlehem now and you don't have to worry about big rocks being thrown at you because you've got an Israeli tag on your car. It's a nice, big, beautiful wall. Beautiful. But anyway, when a country can't even come to agreement on stuff like that, It's not serving the God of the Bible. It's turned its back on the God of the Bible. And beyond all that, it's not blessed is the nation that has a wall on its southern border. It's blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Our God is the omnipotent God. Sadly, that's not America's God anymore. She needs to repent. We talked about the omnipotent God. We talked about the virgin bride. The marriage of the Lamb has come and the wife has made herself ready. Two brides in the scripture. Israel, the adulterous wife of Jehovah that he divorced and will restore one day. And then the virgin chaste bride of Christ that's been espoused to one husband. Israel, 
The, the New Testament church can't be Israel. It's impossible. A chaste virgin bride, a spouse to a husband, is not a divorced, adulterous wife who needs to be restored. It's common sense. And we began to talk a little bit about the Jewish <coughs> wedding. What is a wedding or what's a marriage in Jewish culture? Because a lot of that imagery is used in the New Testament, even by Jesus himself, to describe the relationship of the New Testament church to Jesus Christ. It's husband, the body, the head of the body. And we're told here that the marriage of the Lamb is come. The marriage is come. And his wife, which is the church, obvious in the context of Revelation, in the context of the New Testament, his wife has made herself ready. So we looked last week at the Jewish wedding. We talked about the arrangement. It usually began with an arrangement where the father of the groom made an arrangement with the father of the bride concerning the marriage of their children. Sometimes this arrangement was made when they were children. Well, the father of the groom, who is God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the father of the bride, which is God the Father of us all, made an agreement with himself. And he sent his son to pay the bride price, which was his own blood, precious blood. We talked about the betrothal or the espousal. Once an arrangement was made, the groom would take initiative and leave his father's house and go to the father of the bride and negotiate specifics and then pay the bride price that's what jesus did when he left heaven and came to earth he paid the bride price he purchased the church paul told the ephesian elders to feed the flock of god which he has purchased with his own blood god the son purchased his bride with his blood once this bride price was paid the covenant was established Sometimes the wife and the, the potential bride and the groom would share a cup of wine. And at this point, the marriage would be legal. Once the bride price was paid, the marriage was legal, but it wasn't consummated. Thus began a period of betrothal. Now, betrothal is kind of like our engagement. I said this last week. But the Jews took betrothal very seriously. You were legally married. It wasn't our engagement where we can buy a nice ring for our, 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 our fiancé, and then we could, by giving her that ring, make a commitment that we're going to marry her, but then we break it off. Or these people that live together and are always talking about the one they live with as their fiancé. I mean, come on. If that's your fiancé, marry her. But in the Jewish culture, once you were betrothed, you were legally married, but that marriage had not been consummated. There was a period of betrothal where the bride would be set apart, trained, prepared for her life as a wife, observed for her purity. A lot of times it was a minimum of a year, and that would prove whether or not she was a virgin or not. If a year went by and she didn't have a baby, then, then she was ready. Um, sometimes it was many years. In fact, when the angel appeared to Joseph, in Matthew chapter 1, he and Mary were espoused. They were legally married, but that marriage had not been consummated. That's why it's very, it was very difficult for Joseph because all of a sudden, his espoused bride, who was supposed to be a virgin, is with child. So in his mind, man, she stepped out on me. And he was a righteous man, didn't want to make a public example, but he was struggling with what to do. 
And that's when the angel came. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1 for a minute. We just talked about all this during the, the Christmas season. It's okay to talk about the birth of Christ when it's not December. What's wrong with that? It's okay to talk about the resurrection of Christ when it's not Easter. We should be talking about it all year. Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph. This was the espousal period. Before they came together, that means before the marriage was consummated, before a ceremony, before a consummation, before a wedding feast, before they came together that she was found with child of the Holy Ghost, showed up pregnant. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily or secretly. Joseph, from his perspective, had been cheated on, or maybe his wife had been taken advantage of. He was ashamed, insulted, but even being a just man, he wanted to handle it delicately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David... Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Notice that she is called his wife at this point. Even though they were espoused. And she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. How often have we forgotten that? We want to take what Jesus did on the cross. We good old Baptists. And we want to make excuses for our sin. Well, once saved, always saved. I'm saved now. It doesn't matter. We want to make excuses for our sins when the Bible says Jesus will save His people from their sins. Do you have victory over sin in your life? I'm not asking if you're perfect. I'm not asking if you're not, if you're, whether or not you're struggling in the flesh, but have you had victory over sin in your life? Because that's what Jesus does. If there's no victory, then there's no conqueror in your life. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. Then Joseph being raised from sleep did as the angel had bidden unto him and he took. That's an interesting Greek word there in the original language. I don't like to pronounce Greek from the pulpit because you're not going to remember it anyway. But for the sake of later when we see it again, it's the word, the verb, paralambano. It means to receive. He received her. Not took her away, but received her. He took unto his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. So Moses, I mean, uh, Joseph took her, obviously now because she's pregnant and, and, and the appearance, there was no ceremony or whatever, but he took her, did not put her away, and he waited until after Jesus was born to consummate that marriage. So no charge could be laid against the virgin birth. So not only did he take her to be his wife, but he waited until Jesus was born before he ever even consummated that marriage. Now that's, uh, that's pretty impressive. They still claim Jesus was a child of fornication, those wicked people in the New Testament, those Pharisees. They still said you're a child of fornication. But God knows the truth. Now, Joseph was a spouse to Mary. Now, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and look what Paul talks about. He, he references the Corinthian church, which applies to all of us who are born again in the body of Christ. 
Paul says, I am jealous over you with, it's 2 Corinthians, godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Here we have the Jewish wedding imagery. The church is espoused that she might be presented a chaste virgin. Why is the wife set apart during the espousal? To prepare her that she might be presented to her husband when the legal marriage is consummated. We, the New Testament church, are espoused to our husband right now. We are in a period of espousal. The marriage, what's referred to in Revelation 19, is coming. At that point, the church will be presented to its bridegroom, a chaste virgin. She's what? Made herself ready. I'm not foisting a Jewish wedding on the scriptures. The scriptures are doing that. It's giving us the imagery. So during this period of espousal, the wife is set apart and prepared, remains a virgin. What does the groom do? He departs to his father's house. He leaves her. Departs to his father's house to do what? To prepare a dwelling place where he could later bring his bride. A chupa or a room on his father's house where he could later bring her, consummate the marriage, and the marriage could be celebrated before they left and went to their own home. Betrothal meant separation. We are betrothed and espoused to Christ now, but what are we? We are separated from our bridegroom. He returned to heaven. He left us here. What did he do when he left us here? Well, he did exactly what a Jewish groom would often do. He would leave to go prepare a place, but he would not do so without leaving gifts for his bride to sustain her and provide for her in that time of separation. Did our Lord leave us gifts when He departed? The greatest gift He left us was what? The Comforter who would bring to remembrance the things you had heard, who would show you things to come. The Comforter, the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4. Here Paul is actually quoting the Psalms. Psalm 68, 18. Uh, Paul mentions this as well, Ephesians 4, 7, and 8. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. When he ascended, when he went back to his father, he left gifts with his men. Not just the Holy Spirit, but the spiritual gifts that are given unto the body of Christ. Gifts of grace. To some he gave prophets, to some he gave teachers and pastors, to others he gave ministries of helps, uh, mercies, ministries of, uh, 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 there were ministries and gifts of healing and things like that during the time, uh, uh, the early part of the New Testament age. He gave gifts. What are your spiritual gifts? What are the gifts that your bridegroom has left with you? Are you using them? Are, Are you using them to sustain you and prepare you? Are you given the gift of prophecy? What is prophecy? It's not telling the future. It's proclaiming truth. Sometimes that truth, I'm, I'm, I'm telling the future today. I'm talking about the future because I know it. It's written right here in the scriptures and the Holy Spirit confirms it. But a prophet exhorts, tells you what you should be doing. 
you're a prophet, be a prophet. If you're a teacher, be a teacher. If you're full of helps and, and, and one with the gift to give, give beyond what's expected of you. These are the gifts that were left with us, just like the Jewish wedding. Jesus himself uses wedding imagery when he talks to his disciples. So again, I'm not taking a cultural thing and putting it on the scriptures like a lot of people do. I'm just taking what the scriptures are saying and explaining to you what cultures, what, what culture it's coming from. Jesus is talking to Jews when he's talking to his disciples. He's using things that they're very familiar with. Turn to John 14. Whew, I'm already out of breath this morning. Shouldn't have gotten riled up about a wall. Guess what has a wall around it? Over 200 feet high. The New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem has a wall. Guess what? It's not to keep people in. It's to keep out dogs and whoremongers and wicked people and him that speaks a lie. Our Messiah puts a wall around that city during the millennium to keep out the wicked. So those that say a wall is immoral would say that the Messiah is immoral. It's not immoral. Big, big wall. You can't climb over a 216-foot-high wall. And there's only 12 gates. You only come in by the gates. And you only come in if you come in the right way. Just like I only get into Nepal if I come in the right way. If I go from India to Nepal and I go across a place at the border that doesn't have an immigration station, when I go to leave Nepal at the airport later, I'm going to be in trouble. I'll be detained. Big problem. I'm expected to do things the right way. Why is it that people should just be able to come here and do whatever they want? It's not fair. I have to do what I have to do. I wouldn't dare think of sneaking into a country to do God's work when I know there's an easy and lawful way to do it. It's one man's opinion. John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, dwellings, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. This is the groom talking to his bride. This is Jewish wedding imagery. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you. There's that word again, paralambano. The same thing that Joseph did when he took Mary to be his wife. I will come again and receive you unto myself. Not I will come again and bring you with myself. I will come again and receive you unto me. Which is where is he at? He's at his father's house. I will receive you unto myself that where I am in my father's house, there you may be also. Exactly what a groom would do. He would come and fetch his bride. Jesus uses the imagery. I didn't say it, he did. Therefore, what he's talking about here is the same thing we see happen to John in Revelation 4 verse 1. It's the same thing Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's the same thing he talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the same thing Isaiah makes reference to. It's the same thing we see pictured in the life of Enoch before the flood. It's the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is the fetching of the bride. John 14 is a key passage. Jesus uses the wedding analogy that his disciples would have surely known about. I mean, hey, Jesus did a miracle at a wedding. 
Okay? These disciples had wives. Peter had a mother-in-law. They knew what a wedding was. Groom goes to prepare a place in his father's house, and he will return to fetch his bride. The bride is separated to be prepared and set apart for her husband, sanctified. Exactly what's said again in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 5. I know I'm jumping all over the place. I'm not necessarily going to wait for you to turn there. Kids, this is Bible drill practice, so be turning if you can. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That's a much more difficult job than a wife submitting to her husband. A husband is to follow the example of the bridegroom of the church and love his wife and be patient with her just like Christ is with us. His Christ who loved the church and gave himself for it. He gave himself as the bride price. It's the Bible that, that shows the church's relationship with Christ is pictured in marriage. It's the Bible that uh, relates the two. It's the Bible that tells us our marriage in the eyes of the world ought to be a witness for Jesus Christ. So Christian, when you get married, and I told Eric and Mindy this a couple years ago, the gospel ought to be a part of this because it's, the marriage is a testimony of Christ in the church. So I'll share the gospel as you've asked me to, but don't put a time limit on it. I'm going to share what God lays on my heart. Everybody, sure, praise God, amen. Most people wouldn't be able to handle that. That Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that it should be holy and without blemish. In the period of betrothal, the wife is set apart and sanctified. That she, when, when he comes to fetch her and the marriage takes place, she might be presented faultless and without blemish. We see this when it says in chapter 19, verse 7 of Revelation, the wife has made herself ready. She's ready to be presented. So we have the arrangement. We have the espousal or period of betrothal. Then we have what's called the fetching of the bride. In a Jewish wedding, the bride didn't know exactly when the groom was coming. She was to be ready. And usually it would happen at night. The groom would come with the best man and maybe some other male friends and they would conduct a torchlight procession to the bride's home to literally snatch her away. It was what was considered a romantic surprise. The bride was expected to be ready but didn't know when. Therefore, when the groom was coming, it was preceded by sometimes a trumpet blast or a shout. And when she heard that, she knew to gather her things, it's time to go. Now, that's almost a picture, an exact picture of what we're expecting as a church. Jesus used the wedding imagery there in John 14. We, the bride of Christ, are to be ready to have our lamps burning, listening for that shout. What are we told in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16? With a shout... 
the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. When the, when the groom comes to fetch his bride, there's a shout. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, raptured to, to, with him in the air, not here on the earth, not doing a U-turn and coming back, so shall we ever be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, the trumpet shall sound and the dead will be raised. This mortality will put on immortality in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The fetching of the bride, the church, is what's described there. I make no apologies for preaching and teaching a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. It's biblical. Jesus tells two parables that I think are worth looking at this morning. In these parables, the bride herself is not mentioned. Yet, again, Jesus is using the analogy of a Jewish wedding. Turn to Matthew 25. I hadn't swallowed that crown yet. Praise God. Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened unto what? Ten virgins. This would be the bridal party. Which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise. Five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps but took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps while the bridegroom tarried. That means he was tarrying, brides waiting to be fetched. They all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry, a shout made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, Say not so, lest there be not enough for us and for you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. The, the virgins here, the bride's not mentioned in this parable. The virgins here were unprepared. Guys, this parable is an indictment against the church. It's an indictment against her. Because there are many that call themselves the church that are not. And the true bride of Christ is the remnant body. The remnant body is wet, ready when the bridegroom cometh into the night. The rest, Christians in name only, sinos or sinos, like rhinos, Republican in name only, they're not ready. And guess what happens to them? They're left behind. They were imposters. They weren't the real bride of Christ. This is an indictment against the church. We better be ready. Again, the wedding analogy. We see the bridegroom coming to fetch his bride. And people that are supposed to be part of that bridal party aren't ready. That's going to happen when the rapture takes place. There are going to be churches. Hopefully this house 
And next door will be empty. Nobody will even show up the next Sunday here, I hope and pray. Hope and pray where the kids are concerned. The weeds will start growing. That garden will be overgrown. The rats will start coming back. The house will start falling apart. Guess what, Brother Ronnie? He won't care. Won't care a bit. Neither will Matthew. But there are churches where a sizable portion of people are going to show up and open things up on Sunday morning. Maybe even the pastor will send the pulpit and realize there's a few people out today and go about his business as if nothing happened. They've been left behind because they were never part of the bride of Christ. Another parable a few chapters back, Matthew 22, again the wedding analogy is used. 25, that's an indictment against the church. Here we have an indictment against Israel. Matthew 22, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. So the messianic kingdom that was being expected involved a marriage. Involved a virgin bride married to Messiah. Something they didn't understand. And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden or invited to the wedding and they would not come. And again he sent forth other servants saying, Tell them which are bidden or invited. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come into the marriage. But they made light of it. And went their ways, one to his farm and another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he saith to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways... And as many as you shall find bid to the marriage. So those servants went into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. This is an indictment against Israel. Messiah was sent. Israel was invited. And she rejected the bridegroom. The servants of the Lord, His Jewish apostles were sent out. Go read the book of Acts. What happened? Exactly what this parable said. Paul, Stephen told the Jews, he's sitting there preaching, he's going through the Old Testament scriptures, he's tracing things down through Abraham, and then all of a sudden looks up and realizes they're not even paying attention, they're making light of it. He immediately changes his tone and said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and mind, you always resist the Holy Ghost just like your fathers. And then they were full of rage, and what did they do? They killed him. Just like it says what happened here. So those that were invited rejected. And so what happened? The servants did what? They went out to the highways. To who? The Gentiles. And invited. And many came. And the wedding was furnished with guests. (laughs) That's an indictment against Israel. The bride of Christ is a coveted place to be. The church is both Jew and Gentile. Even today there's a remnant of the Jews that's part of the church, but it's very small. The church is mostly Gentile, just as the parable says. Again, we have the wedding analogy. So the question with regard to the fetching of the bride is this. Are you 
ready. Luke 12, Jesus said, Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. It's not talking about, he's talking about coming to get his bride. Jesus in Matthew 24. Interesting, this word I mentioned before pops up again. In verse 36. But of that day and hour knoweth no man. And here's how we know he's talking about the fetching of the bride here. Not the angels of heaven, but my Father also. See, the scriptures tell us when the second coming will happen. There's a Daniel's 70th week. In the midst of the week, the temple's destroyed. And then the Messiah returns. We can pinpoint these things. But the coming being talked about here is something other. It's the groom coming for his bride. But as that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father also, but my Father only, I'm sorry. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and what? Marrying and given to marriage. There's the hint that there's a marriage analogy here. Until the day that Noah entered into the ark. You see, in those days, they were marrying and giving in marriage, but God came and snatched or fetched Noah and put him in the ark. <clears throat> they didn't even know what was going on. They didn't even know what an ark was for. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. That word take here means to take away. It's another word. It's not the one we looked at earlier. Joseph took Mary to be his wife. It's the Greek word iro, which means to take away. The flood came and took them, the wicked, all away. Took them to judgment, took them to death and drowning. So also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. We know that the wicked are taken away during this terrible period of tribulation that we've been studying. But look what he says here. To then, at this time, when the Son of Man comes, shall be two in the field, the one shall be taken. Now this word taken is not taken away that we just saw in the previous verse. This is the same word that was used when it said Joseph took Mary to be his wife. And it's the same word Jesus said when he told his disciples, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Two will be in the field, one shall be received, fetched, the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be fetched or taken, the other left. Just like who in the Old Testament? Enoch. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. That's the, that's the groom coming for his bride. That's the rapture right there. Even in the Gospels. And that's just what happens at the Feast of Trumpets. Remember how we talked about Jesus fulfills the Jewish feast? Feast of Trumpets. When the trumpet's blown, the Jew would drop what he was doing in the field and immediately go to Jerusalem. And sometimes there'd be Jews and Arabs working side by side and everybody would look up and like, where'd he go? He's off to Jerusalem. The trumpet is sounding. Are you ready? Not for the appearance of Antichrist. We're not looking for him. It behooves us to know who he is and know what to expect because we can recognize his spirit today. But we're not looking for him. Are you ready for the sudden appearance of our bridegroom in the night? When the 
there's a shout in the trumpet. Are you ready as the bride to be taken and fetched? First Peter 4, verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Guys, the end of all things is at hand. All we've got to do is look around. Look at the state of our world today. Look what's happening with the EU and rumblings of a revised Roman Empire coming back to power. Look what's happening in this country, how weak we are. Man, there was a day and time when you could watch old movies like Red Dawn and think about Russians and Cubans invading this country and how this country would stand up and it would never happen. I hope the Russians don't invade this country. We're in big trouble because the people in this country are weak. They're entitled. You think the Russian military, when they train, sits around talking about how to understand transgenders? Do you think that's what the Russians do? Do you think the Chinese sit around and get lectures on anger management and gay marriage? Don't think so. I hope that doesn't happen today. There won't be a red dawn. There won't be any wolverines. You understand the illusion. But we know the end of all things. It's at hand. And praise God, in Messiah, there's victory. I love my country, but I love her enough to tell her exactly what she is. Weak, in need of repentance, in need of turning back to the God of our fathers. George Washington said, you cannot rightly govern the world without God in the Bible. Andrew Jackson said, the Bible is the rock upon which our found, this nation or our republic rests. Not the Constitution, the Bible. The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, how do we do this? How are we sober? How do we watch like the bride should be? Have fervent charity among yourselves. Something the church has forgotten. We're all about tolerance and just loving on the wicked. And we won't even give our brother in Christ the benefit of the doubt when he says something on Facebook. We want just to accuse him. If our brother in Christ is arrested for preaching, then we, the church, automatically assume he did something wrong. That young man who felt called of God to go to that island in the Indian Ocean off the coast of India where they'd been shooting at anybody that approached them for years. It's a long story. goes back a long time. Everybody told me it's crazy. They're going to kill you. He went anyway, and what happened? He was killed. But he was motivated to go share the gospel. And then guess what the church did on Facebook? All they did was talk about what a fool this young man is. He should have listened. He shouldn't have done this. He should have done this. Armchair QB, armchair QB. No, what you saw is a young man who knew the risk, who knew it but loved enough to go and share the gospel and paid for it with his life, was willing to give his life. And yet we want to talk about what he did wrong. Shame on the church. That's not having fervent charity amongst yourselves. I love these people in missions or in the seminaries that think they know everything. I, know, I, love, these, I love how these young fools get out of seminary and they think they can tell us everything about life because they've passed a few academic classes on the Bible. Give me a break. We're to be sober and be ready by having fervent charity among ourselves. Our love for the brethren ought to trump any tolerance or patience we have with the wicked. You are duty-bound to love your brother more than you love the world. Have fervent charity among yourselves. 
For charity does what? It covers the multitude of sins. And by covering sin, we're preparing ourselves. We're ready as the bride. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. We're to be hospitable people to each other. I've been guilty of being hospitable, and then when it sticks around a little bit, I begin to grudge in my heart. We shouldn't do that. If we've offered something to our brother, let him use it. Hospitality. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. The gifts that our bridegroom left with us, we're to use to minister one to another. Let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This passage was powerful to me when I look at it. It says, take the gifts we've been given and to minister one to another according to the ability we've been given, according to the ability which we have. God used that scripture to speak to me years ago after I finished seminary. My wife and I were so bent on getting back overseas and serving with a particular mission board. And when the time came, we knew God was calling us to do something else. And I was wrestling. I realized that, you know what? I can't even share the gospel that well here in my own country. Why should I go overseas? What makes me think I'm going to love that man even more than I do here? And I was struggling through this. Like, I need to be a better evangelist. What should I do? And I was seeking the Lord, and I believed God wanted me simply to graduate pack up, store our stuff, come back here and get on a bicycle and ride across America and trust Him to put people in my path and be faithful to witness the gospel in that to prepare myself from some other work. And I struggled through it. God would give me scriptures. And I remember sitting on a cliff above the Pacific Ocean about 150 feet above the waves crashing one night in Marin County, California. And this is the verse God gave me. Let him minister as of the ability which God gives. I knew in that moment I had the ability to ride a bicycle across this country. Obvious. I've been training. I've ridden another race where I rode from Badwater, Death Valley, lowest elevation in, in uh, 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 this hemisphere all the way to the, the, the trailhead of Mount Whitney. So what had I been doing all that stuff for? Well, I had the ability, so I did it. And God proved it to be led of Him. So God spoke to me in the Scriptures with this passage years ago. And now we've just entered our 17th year of labor. 17, the 17th year since full proof began. I don't take any glory. God just told me to minister with the ability He gave me. I rode a bicycle across the country. God opened it up. Now we've got another family serving with us. We've got churches that support and hold us accountable. People in here that are part of that. One of my former high school students who pastors a church is part of it now. I marvel. You know, as I think about maybe talking a little, even though I don't want the focus to be on me, first off, I've had to um, make a few things clear with some people recently that were misinformed about foolproof gospel ministries. It's not me. It's not me. I don't make the call, I'm under authority. We make the determination. We follow God's will. I've had to correct some misinformation there. But as I'm thinking about what a man may not say tonight, maybe the best way to know what a ministry is is to know what it doesn't do. And going into our 17th year, here's some things we don't do. And I pray these are things you don't do as a church or as a Christian. 
you know, the body of Christ. We don't deviate from the gospel, period. I don't care how the culture changes. When I started in ministry, gay marriage was not acceptable. Transgenderism wasn't a virtue, it was a vice. When I started, churches didn't talk about uh, tolerance and talk about and, and compromise and set aside the gospel. We preached the gospel then, we preach it now, we don't deviate. Homosexuality was wrong back then, and many people would agree with you when you said it. Today it's not wrong, everybody hates you, but we still say it. We don't deviate from the gospel. We don't deputize before we go. In other words, if God calls us, we go. We trust Him to provide. We don't go on a big tour and wait umpteen number of years till we have a certain number amount of gun godly support so we can put, a, put, a, put, a, put, a, put away retirement and health insurance and all this madness. We don't deputize before we go. We go. We don't deputize. We don't go on deputation. I was standing at a missions conference once and I heard somebody, they were talking to me like, you know, don't you go on deputation? And there was a guy nearby that had a ministry with, 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 with drug addicts up in the mountains. And he says, kind of a big old guy, he said, Depu what? <laughs> what the heck does that even mean? <clears throat> no, we trust God. Oh, yeah, that sounds good, but that can't be true. And I'm looking at this guy. You're a missionary? And, and you're, what? No point. There's no point. This guy has no clue. We don't deputize. If God calls, you go. He always provides. We don't go into debt. We just don't. We haven't once in 17 years. We won't. We don't dissociate ourselves from the local church. We don't dissociate ourselves from the authority of the local church or partnership with it. God set up the local church to be the core of the Great Commission. We're not parachurch. There's something wrong with all these parachurch missions that aren't accountable to local churches. They don't partner with local churches. It's not New Testament. The only thing, we're a Jewish ministry primarily. That's the, that's the path God has put us on and He's prepared us for in all these years. But guess what we don't do? We don't dismiss opportunities with the Gentiles. We're not a people group obsessed ministry. We go to whoever God puts in our path. We go to the Jews. If they won't hear, we'll go to the Gentiles. In fact, the best revenge when you try to share the gospel with Israelis and some alpha male who's kind of in control of the group because he was a sergeant or a lieutenant in the IDF blows you off and tells the rest of them not to have anything to do with you and then they hand back the New Testaments they take and then they won't even talk to you. You know what the best revenge against that is? Go to the Gentiles. Exact revenge Paul and Barnabas do. It's great. Satisfying. We'll go to the Gentiles. They'll listen. So we don't dismiss those. That's the things we don't do. That's the things we as a church shouldn't do as we make ourselves ready for the bride to come. Ministers of the ability God gives us. The fetching of the bride. When the bride is fetched, guess what? The marriage of the Lamb is come. When the bride is fetched, when the rapture happens, the marriage is come. What's legal will be consummated. That's what we're waiting for. We're a bride waiting for her bridegroom to come. And as we wait, we're to love our wives like Christ loved the church. We're to minister one to another. Be sanctified and set apart. 
When it says in Revelation 19.7, the marriage of the Lamb is come, this kind of encapsulates three other parts of a Jewish wedding. A Jewish wedding had a, an arrangement, a period of betrothal, the fetching of the bride, and then there was what was called a marriage ceremony. The marriage ceremony, you know, when the bride was fetched, the bridegroom and the friends of the bridegroom and the bride and her wedding party would be taken back to the home of the groom's father. And there, just a few, usually some immediate family and friends and a couple of witnesses were gathered for a brief marriage ceremony. At this time, the bride would be veiled. Once the ceremony was complete, there was the consummation. What had been covenanted back when the period of a spousal began, at least a year earlier, what had been covenanted was now consummated. The groom would take his bride to the chuppah, or the bridal chamber, and he would be escorted there by the bridal party. And inside that chuppah, the, the marriage would be consummated. So you'd have the marriage ceremony, the consummation, and then finally what's called the wedding supper. Not the marriage feast, a public feast, but a marriage supper. This was when the consummation would be announced to the gathered guests. And then there would be a time of feast and celebration in the groom's father's house. Now usually this marriage ceremony, this consummation, this wedding supper in a Jewish wedding took place over a period of, what do you think? How many days? Think about the analogies. How many days? Seven days. How much time goes by when the church is out of here? in the groom's father's house undergoing these things. Seven years. Period of tribulation. Very interesting. When you think about the wedding supper, the bride and the groom are presented. She's not veiled anymore. We see this in Psalm 19. The son is compared to the bride coming out of the wedding chamber in a Jewish wedding. Psalm 19 verses talks about how the heavens declare the glory of God. And in verse 4, he has set a tabernacle for the sun. Verse 5, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. The glory of the sun is like when the bridegroom comes out of that chuppah with his bride after the marriage has been consummated. That's the reference there. Usually there's some close friends or gathered guests that are a part of this. We see this mentioned or referenced in John chapter 3. John 3, 29. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Who's talking here? It's John the Baptist. John the Baptist was an Old Testament saint. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. The forerunner, a type of the forerunner of the Messiah's coming. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, John's referring to himself and those he represents, which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly 
because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He's talking about the friend of the bridegroom that rejoice, rejoices when he hears the voice of the bridegroom as he comes out of his chuppah with his new bride after the marriage has been consummated. The friend of the bridegroom. We're going to see the friends of the bridegroom are part of this. So we have the marriage ceremony, the consummation, the wedding supper. In terms of Christ in the church, the marriage of the Lamb has come. She's made herself ready. Therefore, it's time. It's time for what? The ceremony, the consummation, the wedding supper. It's time. Remember that parable in Matthew 22 where it went out into the highways and the byways? Now, it said, and then it said they came in and the wedding was furnished with guests. Furnished with guests. Well, what guests will have been gathered at this heavenly supper that's now furnished where the bride, groom, the Messiah, and the bride, his queen, the New Testament church, come out? Who are the guests? Who are the friends of the bridegroom? John the Baptist represented who? The Old Testament saints. Who's in heaven now? Toward the end of the tribulation, their population in heaven has grown. The tribulation saints. Those saints that are saved during the tribulation, not those that have heard the gospel now, those that have never heard it before. The Jewish witnesses go preach. They've been martyred by Antichrist. Now the supper is furnished with guests. The Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints are gathered. After this supper in the groom's father's home with select guests, then the marriage is made public. The bride and the groom very publicly go to their own home. Except for in the case of Christ and His church, it's not a bride and a groom simply making a public procession to a new home. It's a king and a queen coming to reign on his throne, not his father's throne. Not a simple bridegroom and a bride, but a king and a queen. Doesn't it say that the church will reign with him? It's interesting because we see this imagery in Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is actually a picture of the Messiah coming as he comes to reign over the earth. We see Messiah as a prophet and a priest and then he's declared as a king. And we see him pictured as he comes to reign. Thy throne, O God. So here Messiah is called God. Elohim is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. So the scriptures are pretty clear that Messiah is God. Verse 7, Thou lovest righteousness and hateth wickedness. Therefore God... Thy God, God the Father, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia and of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among the honor, thy honorable women and upon thy right hand did the queen stand in gold of Ophir. Messiah's queen is his church. 
stands by his side. And then he comes to reign. See that when you read the rest of the psalm. Most of the psalms are prophetic. It's time for the ceremony. It's time for the consummation of the. It's time for the supper. It's time. The bride is dressed and ready. That's what it says. The marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. She's ready. What does that mean? Well, we're in heaven. After the judgment of reward, before the second coming, at the end of the tribulation. That's when the wife has made herself ready. There's never a legal marriage without some ceremony. But before the wife must adorn, the, before a ceremony, what does the wife have to do? She's got to get ready. She's got to put on her wedding garments, fix her hair, her makeup her dress, etc. The wife has made herself ready. Look at verse 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. Her wedding dress is fine linen, clean and white. And what is this? For the fine linen is the righteousness of Christ? doesn't say that. The fine linen is the righteousness of saints. These garments mentioned here are not imputed righteousness. They are the righteous acts and works of the saints themselves. How in the world can the bride of Christ, who's been purchased with His blood, we sinners who've had righteousness imputed to us, how then can it be said that we clothe ourselves with the, our righteousnesses? How is that, can that be said? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Just got through my introduction. No, I'm just joking. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. He's the foundation. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Yet so is by fire. This is talking about the church. The judgment seat of Christ where our works are tried to see if they're true. Those that survive our reward. Those of us who didn't live for Christ as we should, our works will burn up. But we ourselves will be saved, yet so as by fire. Salvation can't be lost. Know you not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple are ye? Everything you've ever built for God, that was not for God, God will destroy it. It won't mean anything. It burns up. 2 Corinthians 5.10 <clears throat> 
For we must all, he's talking to the church, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not the great white throne judgment of God where hell and death are judged in Revelation 20. This is the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. There's a judgment seat of Christ where our righteous works are judged, whether they're true or not. Romans 14, verses uh, 10 through 12. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? This is talking about Christians between Christians, not Christians in the world. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ... For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. This is talking to the church. 1 Peter 1, 7. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perisheth, Though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory when at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So our Peter desires that the trials of our faith will be a glorious thing when Christ comes for us, when they're tried by fire. What we see here is the judgment seat of Christ. When the church is raptured out, when, when the bridegroom fetches his bride, The final stage of her preparation is the judgment seat of Christ where our works are judged. Before the marriage ceremony, before the consummation, the judgment seat of Christ. We're not ready as a bride until we've stood before that judgment seat. Who's the accuser at the judgment seat? We get the answer in Revelation 12. It's interesting that in all this talk about the dragon... Satan, in his hatred for the woman, Israel, there's an interesting reference to him in verses 10 and 11 when he's cast out of heaven. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. He's the accuser. He's the one that stands at that judgment seat and says, Guilty, false, liar. After the judgment seat, he tries to stick around. He he tries to bring those accusations into the chuppah, into the... No, he tries to bring those accusations in amongst the guests that are gathered and waiting for the bridegroom to come out with his bride and to come to the supper. He hangs around. Remember that parable we looked at back in Matthew 22? The wedding supper was furnished with guests. And then I stopped there, but what does it continue to say? Uh, Matthew 22... The wedding was furnished with guests, Matthew 22 and 10. The tribulation saints, the Old Testament saints. And when the king, that is the father, came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not a wedding garment. So the bride and the groom are in their chuppah, consummating their marriage. The supper's being prepared. 
Somebody's there that doesn't have a wedding garment on. The king says, friend, how camest thou in hither having not a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foe and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What happens to Satan in Revelation 12? Cast out into outer darkness. Cast down. Woe unto those that are here on the earth when that happens. For now he is ticked off. The accuser hangs around, but he's cast out. He hangs around to accuse. He's the accuser of our brethren. And that accusation ends at the judgment seat of Christ. The accuser, the prosecutor, fails. This is around the midpoint of the tribulation when he's cast out. When the bride is with her bridegroom in the chuppah. She comes out toward the end. She participates in the pouring out of the bowls. We're going to see that. Who's the judge? Romans 14 tells us who the judge is at the, uh, at the judgment seat. Romans 14, 10 to 12. But why does thou judge thy brother? I just read this. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to God. Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. God is the judge. Who's the defense attorney? Who appears on our behalf? Who's the advocate that Job prayed for? Ephesians 5 gives us the answer. I'm not guessing at this stuff. The Bible tells us. Talks about Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. We just read this. Why? That he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he should be holy and without blemish. This is the bridegroom answering on behalf of this church and presenting her to him without blemish. He's the defense attorney. Sorry, Satan, my blood paid for that. Here, the bridegroom at the judgment seat is presenting her to himself. There's no one to give away the bride in this heavenly ceremony. So he gives and presents it, her to himself. For he stood in our stead. Those works that survive the fire, we're, it's, it's the works that are judged when you went in, on that mission trip. When you wrote that check and put it in the offering plate. Preacher, when you stood up here and preached, when you gave out that tract, when you took a stand, was it genuine? Or did you have an agenda? The fire will reveal it. Those works that survive are reward. We see the, the saints casting their crowns before the Lamb in Revelation 4. The rewards. Crowns. But these rewards also involve wedding garments in which the saints are clothed, in which the bride is able to adorn herself and be made ready. That's why it can be said that she is clothed with the righteousness of the saints. Her wedding garments are those works that survive the fire of the judgment seat. So when the marriages come, the judgment seat's over. The accuser is cast down. She's ready. Her righteousness that survives the fiery test fashions her garment. And I'm led to believe by the scriptures that a level of brightness in that garment 
will distinguish in terms of reward. Those that have many works that survive the fire, that wedding garment will be bright. Those that have few, they'll have a garment. They'll, be survive, they'll survive. They'll be part of the church, the bride, but it won't be so bright. How do I know this? Well, it's funny if you look in the Old Testament. Daniel, I'll move fast. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. Talks about those that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and content. Some will awake. We see this at the rapture. And they that are wise of those that awake shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. Shining. (coughs) Revelation 3, the message to the church of of Laodicea. The church that's being written to here is not lost people. It's... Lukewarm Christians, those whom I love, I chasten. The Bible says that the lost aren't chastened. They're bastards spiritually. It's a good old King James word, Hebrews. So he's writing to believers, but it says here, Jesus warns the church. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone. No, I'm, I'm, I'm in the wrong place. I'm in the wrong chapter. That was Revelation 2 I was reading. That was a message to the, the church at uh, Pergamos. Revelation three seventeen and 18. Look what he says to Laodicea. Laodicea, rights of the people. That doesn't describe the American church today. I don't know what does. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and what? Naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Do we want the shame of our nakedness to appear after the judgment seat? Because all our works have been uh, burned up and we're not able to stand brightly with others that were ready? Oh yeah, we'll stand there. We can praise God for that. But do we want to be ashamed? Would a bride ever want to stand at the altar without a clean, pretty white dress? 1 John 2 warns us, the believer. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in Him that when He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Not lost, but ashamed. Tied to the judgment seat of Christ. Tied to the wedding garments. I think we should take heed, brethren. I think we should take heed. I want my wedding garment to be bright. I don't want my works to burn up in the fire. I don't want to stand before God after however many years of FPGM and most everything we did just burns up. Maybe it will. I don't even know my own heart. God does. Jesus does. If we, abide, if we believe not yet, He abideth faithful. Only Christ. It's my only hope. By the end of verse 7, the judgment seat of Christ is finished. 
The accuser is silent. He's kicked out of heaven. And the bride is dressed. It's the end of the hallelujah chorus. The focus of that chorus is the bride is dressed and ready. It's time for the ceremony. And then in verses 8 through 10, we have the marriage of the Lamb. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. It's interesting, if you go back to chapter 15, verse 6, guess who was clothed in pure and fine white linen? The seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen. So the seven angels that pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath are also clothed in clean linen, pure and white. We'll talk about that a little later. Not today, probably. Verse 9, And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the supper, marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Blessed are those who are called to the supper. The bride is called. She's the bride. Blessed is the church that's raptured, that's purified before the judgment seat of Christ, that's married to the, the Lamb, a ceremony, that that marriage is consummated and then comes to the supper. Blessed are those guests who are called to the supper. The Old Testament saints, going all the way back to the book of Genesis until John the Baptist. Blessed are the tribulation saints who've been martyred. All those that are called to that supper. <clears throat> the wedding garment is fine linen, clean and white. The righteousnesses of saints that survive the fiery test. Seven angels that pour out the seven bowls have that same clothing on. If we look at uh, a little bit later in the chapter, verse 14, guess who also has that same clothing on? And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, clean and white. Interesting. The marriage of the Lamb that is come is the ceremony, the consummation, and the supper. And then blessed are those in verse 9 who are called to the private supper in the groom's father's house in heaven. The private supper. The private supper. Why are they blessed? Because they're blessed. They escape suffering in hell and they escape suffering on earth. There's suffering in hell and there's a whole lot of suffering in earth going on at this time. And death and hell will give up their dead and they'll all stand before God. And then they'll make a break for the lake. Here they come where to escape pain people chew on their tongues. Is that right? That's right? Amen. Daniel didn't get that illusion. That's a little, little, little older than Shylin for your time, brother. <laughs> Amen. Verse 9, And he saith unto me, Who is the he here? Well, we've got to go all the way back to Revelation 17, verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials. Remember, the Lamb opens the title deed of the earth. The seven seal judgments. 
The seventh seal is the seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet is the seven vials. One of those angels came to John who had the vials and said, I'm going to show you the judgment of the great whore. He's with John all through this. And in verse 9, he saith unto me, this same angel that showed him the judgment of mystery Babylon and the judgment of commercial Babylon that has revealed these things concerning the marriage of the Lamb, he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Write down some invitations. Let's get those invitations out. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Write it down, for it is true. My friends, the truth is worth inscribing. It's worth writing down for oneself and for one's posterity. God saw the truth important enough, He wrote it down. He didn't leave it out there in dreams and and visions and and, and opinions of rabbis that contradict themselves. If you put 10 Jewish rabbis in an elevator, they'll have 11 different opinions. He didn't put it in an oral tradition or in the heart of a, of a so-called prophet who would foam at the mouth when he would speak. I'm talking about Muhammad. Muhammad said, I don't know if I'm a poet or if I'm possessed of the devil. Those were his own words at the end of his life. God wrote it down. And he even took what he wrote down and he magnified it even above his name. Psalm 138.2, Thou hast magnified thy word even above thy name. The truth is worth writing down. You never know what you write down now might be preserved generations from now and someone might pick it up and be moved by it. Take Charles Spurgeon for an example. Charles Spurgeon was a great Baptist preacher, but he was not beloved in his day and time like so many Christians are beloved him and his writings. He was despised. He suffered. He was depressed. He was betrayed. He was treated horribly by the church that he pastored for so long. No one stood with him when he would take a stand. He died very sad and discouraged. But how many of us all these years later, because he took the time to write down the things he was thinking about, are so blessed by that? I was just looking for something a while back in my library. I like to look through there and I kind of marvel that, man, I got a lot of books in here I've never even read. That's pretty sad. I ought to have read every book in my library. I was just kind of in that mood where I was searching for something and I pulled out a hardback copy of Spurgeon's Morning and Evening Devotions that I've really never even looked at, ever. And I was just looking for something. I was thinking about, you know, I want to get to the point in my life where the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is think about the Lord and the last thing I do before I lay down on the pillow. Now, I'm not talking about waking up in the bed and looking at my phone and seeing if I got any, any news or any emails or any of Trump's tweets. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about first thing I do, think about the Lord, open up something. Then I'll look at my phone. Then I'll get my coffee. Then I'll do my plantar fasciitis stretches before I walk on that hard floor. And then what's the last thing I do before I go to bed? Think about the Lord. That doesn't mean I look at my phone or do something else, but that's the last thing I do before I turn out the light. I was just thinking about wanting to do that, and I pulled out a hardback copy of Spurgeon's morning and evening that I happened to have. 
And I started using it like that months ago. When I went to Nepal, I didn't want to carry it with me because of the weight, so I found an app where I could do it on my phone. But what was interesting is that in the beginning of this hardback book that I even forgot I had had, someone long ago had taken the time to write something down. It was in 1995. My grandmother, who's been with the Lord a long time, had written this. Your own spiritual life, my prayer is that your own spiritual life will be enriched by thinking with this great man of God from the past. And when I looked at that, I thought, I'm going to do that, I'm going to answer that prayer. It's it's all these many years later, and I'm going to make sure her prayer is answered. Because she wrote it down, then I took that, and I've been immensely blessed. I was, I was blessed this morning when he talked about the providence of God that blesses one thing in one situation and frustrates the exact same thing in another situation. I was encouraged to read that. But somebody wrote it down and many years after her body went back to the dust in the grave, it meant something to me and it encouraged me to take action that has actually answered what she said she was praying. I just think it's great because somebody wrote it down. Blessed are those who get invitations to the marriage supper. And I'm going to end here. Blessed are those who get invitations. These things here in Revelation 19 are testimonies to the churches. We are invited... And we are called to invite in a marriage when the the, the invitations go out. Who gets invited? Is it only the groom, his friends and family that gets invited? No, the bride's friends and family get invited too. Groom does inviting and the bride does invite. Look at Revelation 22, 17. Look what it says. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Folks, that ain't religion. That ain't religion. Freely, whosoever will, ain't religion. That's not Islam. That's not Hinduism and Buddhism. It's not Catholicism. It's not animism. It's not American churchianity. The gospel is whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. And who are those that say come? Not just the Holy Spirit, but the bride. The bride is to be inviting. Those of us who have gotten invitations need to be inviting others to go into the highways just like the parable. And if certain people won't listen, go and find those that will. Even if they're blind and halt and deaf. Whosoever will, blessed are those that receive those invitations. These things are true sayings of God. Blessed are they which are called in the marriage supper is a true saying of God. It's a blessing. So not only are we called, but let us be those that call as well. Let us be the bride that says, come.
freely. That's not religion. I'm going to end there today. I want to talk a little bit about the marriage supper next time. We've got to be very careful that we don't confuse the marriage supper referenced here with Jesus fulfilling the Feast of Tabernacles. When He comes down as a king, He rescues Israel. Him and His queen, His new bride, rule and reign, and God is with us in the millennium. This is not that. The marriage supper being referred to here is in heaven. It's a private supper. It's not Christ fulfilling the Feast of Tabernacles on earth. It's not. And what's the proof? The proof is that two suppers are referenced in in Revelation 19. You can't ignore the context. We have the supper of the Lamb. And then if you go down... To verse 17, we have the supper of the great God. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, for only those will escape the supper of the great God. Supper of the great God, the invitation goes to the fowls of heaven. Come and eat the flesh of captains and of kings and of mighty men. Blessed are those that are called to the supper of the Lamb in heaven, the church, the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints, because the supper of the great God is coming. And when it it comes, the heavens will be opened. Twice in Revelation, the heavens are opened. Once, somebody goes up. John, Revelation 4.1. The church represents the church. And the only other time, Revelation 19, they're open and something comes down. And what comes down is the bridegroom with his queen and the supper of the great God. So we can tell in the immediate context, there's two suppers here. This is not talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. So I want to I, I get into who the guests are at the private supper. Ephesians references the whole family of God. Who is the whole family of God? That's bigger than the New Testament church. Okay, And uh, then we're going to um, talk about what happens here with John and the angel. And then... We're going to see the heavens opened. I'm encouraged to talk to you a little bit about the opening of the heavens. You see, my son was given a telescope for Christmas. Now, it's a kid's telescope. It's a travel telescope. It's not the greatest telescope on earth, but I've actually been playing with it a little more than he has, just like Jason's been playing with his more than his kids have. And I'm telling you, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And when I look up at the heavens... I remember there was a show I used to watch uh, growing up, and it's one of my favorites. I don't know if I should even be admitting this. It was called The Wonder Years. <laughs> and there was an episode in there where the kid, Kevin, went to work with his dad, and his dad had this hard job with all this stress and all this other stuff. And the kid observed, you know, he was able to go to his work with his dad. His dad had a terrible day. The boss was a real jerk. He came down, he was real stressed out. And the kid observed that, He knew his dad had a really, really bad day at work if he came home and went out in the backyard at night and started looking through the telescope. That's how he knew his dad had a bad day at work. And I thought about that because if you want a break from anything in this life that is troubling you, from all that fake news on TV, for all the garbage and all the accusations against president every day and all the things they say about Christians and Republicans. If you want a break from that, 
just get a telescope and go out in your backyard at night and look, and you'll suddenly realize how finite and unimportant all of these things are. And as we glare up into a heaven and see those things there, we can think about that heaven one day is going to open. And when it opens, there's no going back. The king is here. There's an important statement at the end of verse 10 for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I don't want to skip over that either. That's important. That means two things, and I'm going to talk about that. So I'll just end here today. Um, I hope that was a blessing to you. So we have gotten through verse 9. Verse 9. I believe that's right. Verse 9. These are the true sayings of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, the encouragement. Thank you for invitations that we've been given through Christ and the Holy Spirit to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I pray, Lord, we would be those that say come to others. We would be the servants that go out into the highways and gather all those that will come. That we'd be faithful. Lord, we look forward to the day. We're a spouse to you, Jesus. Help us to be pure and prepared and ready. And to love one another. Ready when you come to fetch us. May the works that we do in your name abide that fiery test that is coming. So that when the marriages come, we the wife will have made ourselves ready. And we look forward to that consummation of all things. Thank you Lord Jesus for loving us and giving yourself for us. When there was no one to give us away, you gave us, you give us away to yourself. You paid that bride price. Lord, I'm so glad, Jesus, that you loved us because if you didn't, who else will? Mm -hmm. 20, 25 years after we're dead, nobody will even remember us. If you didn't love us, if God didn't love us, who would? So we praise you for that. I pray you bless the food, bless our fellowship. Help us to have fervent charity one for another today. In Christ, our bridegroom's name, amen.